Welcome to another episode of The Solar Podcast. Today, Dave is talking with Scott Wynn, CEO of Bodhi. Join us as Scott discusses his journey from Vietnamese refugee to Harvard-trained PhD and how his new company, Bodhi, is helping solar companies deliver the digital experience that modern consumers expect. Let's get right into it on The Solar Podcast. Well, we're, we're thrilled to have with us today, Scott Wynn on the Solar Podcast. I'm Dave Anderson, the host. And, and I tell you, Scott, I've actually known Scott for a while, um, being in solar as long as I have been. He brings a fantastic perspective, particularly on the residential side, but I think he's going to be able to offer perspective just generally on solar and where solar is going, but has a fantastic background and upbringing, starting as a refugee and then ending as a PhD. Well, ending, I guess, more, more recently as an entrepreneur. Um, and so I'd love, Scott, if you wouldn't mind just diving a little bit into your background and feel free to talk a little bit about your childhood as well. I think it's just a fantastic and fascinating story. Yeah, kind of interesting. Hey, thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me on the program. Um, it's exciting to be here to chat with you. And man, so I think, yeah, I guess you didn't know this, but I don't think many other people knew this as well. But so I was born in Vietnam. Um, of course, my name, Scott, doesn't give that away, but I was born in Vietnam. And so this was 1978. In 1980, there was a huge exodus of Vietnamese folks after the Vietnam War that were moving to different places. And so our family escaped from Vietnam and by boat. So we were one of the boat people that um, you may have heard about. And my family escaped, wandered around in sea, got lost in um, South China Sea for a few days and then finally actually got saved by a German oil tanker who picked us up and, and the, the boat was already, you know, taking in water. And so it was pretty timely for us. And we went through the refugee kind of, um, went to a, a refugee camp in Thailand for a few months and then to, to another one in um, the Philippines before we were able to be sponsored over by my dad's cousin who was already living in Austin at the time. So he came over to the U.S. in 1975 with a lot of other um, Vietnamese refugees during the fall of Saigon. And from there, this is kind of where I grew up. I grew up a um, Houstonian. Um, and, you know, one of the first few things that when we came over, my parents actually, back in, in Vietnam, my dad was a English teacher and writer, and my Mom was a um, elementary school teacher, but like most immigrant stories, we came over to the U.S. and just did whatever we could. And so they worked um, some blue-collar jobs and raised a family of three. And so just with hard work, we went through, and I went to I went off to college, and in the end, got a PhD at, um, in physics from Harvard, which is incredible. So how how old were you when you left Vietnam? So I was two years old when I left Vietnam. Do you have any memories or recollections of the of the trip? No, no recollections. But it was kind of there's a story that my parents always tell that, you know, we were escaping under the cover at night. And there was a story how I since I was only two years old, my parents were trying to get everything ready. And they actually left the house with my older brother and sister and forgot about me. And it was actually my grandmother who was staying behind, who was like, hey, Here's your youngest. <laughs> you forgot about him. So that was um, that's a story that we we kind of tell because if um, if 
my, yeah, if not for my grandmother, I'd probably still be in Vietnam, like raising, like probably have a pig farm or something along those lines. Well, if ever there were a story, um, that shows sort of just like, a, um, you know, the opportunity for someone to sort of overcome circumstances, I think you're a fantastic example of that. I, I it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a marvelous story from my perspective. Thanks for sharing that. So, um, and a lot of, I think credit you probably would give to your parents and, and sort of their willingness to do what it takes to support their family. And I can't imagine that it was really simple. I guess your, your father was probably somewhat advantaged when he arrived in, in, in that he was uh, an English speaker when he got here, correct? That's right. I think we actually, we had advantages, I think, also just going through the, the refugee um, camps as well because of how well he did speak English. And so then being able to pick up jobs um, right when we moved over, that helped as well. So I think, yeah, I think, as growing up as a kid, I don't think I appreciated and understood the sacrifices that my parents made. But um, now I'm 44 years old now, got two kids of my own. It really does make a difference in understanding, like, what are these opportunities? Because one of the things I, I always kind of um, talk about these days is that talent, you know, has no boundaries. But opportunities is where um, that's still um, pretty scarce. And so... We were able to get here into the States and, you know, the land of opportunity was definitely true for us. And so I think that's going to be, um, I think that's an important aspect to always understand and appreciate. Yeah, absolutely. So I got to ask, have you ever been back to Vietnam? Yeah, it's funny. I've only been back once and that was back in 1996. So it was quite a while ago and that was the first time I went back and that was an eye-opening experience. There were... Um, first time I got to see my grandmother, aunts and cousins that were living there. Um, we were the town, the, the, the place they lived at was a little bit on the outskirts. So there was very little electricity. And then, so there's all sorts of stories that I have about having very little electricity, going out to get food every single day from the market because there was no refrigerator. And then what then happens when their monsoon season comes around and washes out all the roads so that the trip to the market is impossible. And then what do you do? Yeah, we've talked a lot in this podcast how um, how big of a difference to any society that electricity makes. And access to electricity is a really important thing. And I think we, we, we certainly center most of our conversations around what it means to electrify and to bring solar to the U.S. marketplace. But there is a spillover effect. I mean, there are still just under a billion people in, in the world that don't have access to electricity. And uh, the monsoon season in, in Vietnam, actually, I don't think they would actually even count in that statistic. The people that have limited access to electricity, um, you know, probably aren't even part of that statistic. But, you know, so. No, that's true. I mean, so, I mean, our, so our house at the time, so back in 96, my, my family's, um, my relative's home had limited electricity. So just enough for lights and for, um, for, I think, for the TV. And, but there was enough for refrigeration. And so. Like I said, we were going out for food every day, you know, the market. And what's great there was like when we could do that, fresh food, fresh herbs. It was amazing food. But then when that monsoon season, that storm came and I remember that day we couldn't go and we had nothing. There was really very little to eat. And I was just, I was starving. And I remember what specifically was that my cousins who were about 10 or 12 at the time, they ran out into the, the, the field and basically caught a bunch of frogs, little tiny frogs. And that was what was fried up for, for our evening meal. 
yeah, I grew up differently than that, that to, to say the least. So um, anyway, so moving on a little bit further into your future from your childhood, um, obviously education is something that you probably would say defines you uh, as well. Uh, you have an incredible educational background. So how was it that you landed in Harvard and what was it precisely that you studied while you were there? And so I was a bit of a science geek. And so I went and studied physics and because what I wanted to do was try to uncover the mysteries of the universe. And going into grad school at, at Harvard, what I wanted to do was figure out, you know, what are all these different, you know, what are all the underlying laws that govern how nature works, how atoms and molecules work. And so that's what I wanted to go into. And I did. So what, you know, what I was doing at the time was really building up experiments to understand how atoms and molecules were interacting at really low temperatures right above absolute zero. And really kind of the kind of my, my goal at the time in my, my naive sense was if we could, con, you know, understand these interactions and actually start to control these interactions between atoms and molecules, maybe there would be completely different ways in which we can handle and control um, chemical reactions and rather than just relying on pressures and temperatures. And so I did that and it was really interesting. It was great. But then as we continued along, there, there was a point in the time in my career at, in grad school, it was a six year um, period, by the way, somewhere in the middle, I started thinking, you know, what else is out there? And this is when there are various aspects of kind of the social impact of, I remember very clearly, I was reading a New York Times article about arsenic in water wells. And you kind of think about it where in the US, you know, we had, we're trying to do all these advanced things. We've got this state of the art technology, but there are still people in the world who can't have clean drinking water. And so that's what started changing kind of how I started thinking about what I wanted to do. And so it was definitely from an environmental sustainability bent, which kind of precipitated from that arsenic um, story that I was telling you, but then more broadly at that time, this is around 2003, 2004, this is when climate change really started getting a lot more press and started to understand like, you know, what was the, what was the situation with the climate crisis, but then how does clean energy really play a big role? And so as I was finishing up my degree, that's what I wanted to try to look into was what are, what type of impact could I make in this whole clean energy revolution. And, and one of the interesting things is I was, you know, I was academic, I was getting a PhD and I remember talking to engineering professors and one engineering professor told me this, said, you know, you can stay in academia, but if you really wanna make a difference, you need to go out into industry because that's the place where they have enough money to make a real impact. And so that's why I, I yeah, I left the ivory towers and, um, went into industry. So the natural transition for a guy that's starting to come around to this concept of climate and uh, climate catastrophe and climate change is to go to work for big oil, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right, right? So, so so how did that transition happen? Yeah, you know, one of the things was, you know, when I think what's kind of interesting, just so like, and anyone that's listening, there's going to be your one career is going to zigzag from one place to the other. And one thing that you realize is that you really don't know that much where you currently are. And after a few years, you're gonna know a lot more, but you still won't know enough. And so at that time, Shell Oil was one of the few companies that appreciated um, a PhD degree. 
And one of the opportunities that they gave me right off the bat was to explore various different types of technologies, including uh, renewable energy technologies, to be evaluated into their portfolio. Because like I said, in 2006, when I graduated, that was the heyday of Cleantech 1.0, right? So not only were the startups working on it, but all the big companies, like Shell was putting billions of dollars into understand, trying to see, to commercialize renewable te um, technologies. And so they put tons of money into biofuels, into, they had some solar work and they were doing a bunch of others. And so one of the areas that I kind of came in and, and looked at was some various alternative energies. And so I was able to scope out and learn tons of information, tons of on solar PV, um, concentrated solar power at the time, which both at that time was equivalent in price, if anyone can even fathom than that. But I was, yeah, I looked into quite a bit, did a lot of due diligence on nuclear power as well. So it was a pretty, it was a great opportunity for someone that was young and didn't know that much about the industry to really pick it up. And they've got, um, and because they appreciated PhDs, there was a lot of opportunity for me to, to, to learn. Yeah. I think uh, another way of, of thinking about that would be companies, big companies even, their complacency can oftentimes lead to their extinction. And I don't think it's really well known that a lot of these oil companies, big oil companies, are spending quite a lot of money and quite a lot of time and effort and resources toward trying to better understand other alternative energy sources. I mean, obviously, uh, oil is, is the, the primary focus for each of these businesses. And I would suggest and, and say that there is still a level of ignorance, even in these companies, in terms of like how important and the impact that these renewable energy sources like solar and wind and other things, um, the, the, the magnitude of the impact. Um, but to say that they're not looking into it or spending money on it or time on it, I think is, is also a little bit of an ignorant position to think about. No, no, I agree. Because I think when you look at it from the amount of money they were spending was a small percentage of how much their capital spend was, for sure. So it's like probably, I think they're probably spending $40 billion on capital expenditures. And, but $1 billion of that was into renewable energy. And that's the kind of the thing where the percentage was small, but the absolute number was actually quite large. Um, and I don't think people recognize that, that that fact as well. So, but I think you're right. I think the other aspect of it is that from some of these, they, the, I don't think they necessarily understand the urgency of the problem. And so there's always this discussion about a, it needs to be a transition. Yes, there does need to be a transition, but they also say, well, maybe it's, not just renewable, it's all of the above. And I think that's where one gets this complacency, where one doesn't get the sense of urgency that, you know, that is needed for us to be able to get out of this, um, that mess that we created. Yeah. And frankly, they have an obligation to their investor base to be able to return a responsible um, return. And, and most people invest in oil companies because of their position in oil. And it's, it, to your point, it's it's more than just virtue signaling. I mean, there's material money coming into the industry from these um, what are traditionally thought of as uh, dirty energy or um, you know, big oil. So it's material money that's coming into the industry to actually help drive some of that change. And, and, and frankly, I'd love to see more of it. So um, at some point, though, you leave uh, working for these big organizations and you make a transition into being more of an entrepreneurial role. So how did that happen or where did that come about? I mean, the first one was just that first opportunity was just <clears throat> one of my old bosses at, um, I used to work for the chief scientist of Shell. And so he retired and essentially like, hey, Scott, you want to come work for my 
new startup? And I said, sure. And he said, it's going to be in Israel. I was like, wait, hold on. Let me, <laughs> let me talk to my wife. And at the time, we, it was funny. We had about a one-year-old kid at, at that time. Things were going fine, but she, we were living in Houston. And she's like, what? Living in Tel Aviv? Okay, let's go. So that was really the start. And that was where it was actually really interesting because, you know, the entrepreneurial world are, you know, much more dynamic, a much, much more um, responsibilities. And so that, I mean, just as a young person who's ambitious, I mean, that, that actually checked a lot of the, the boxes about what um, I wanted to do to get more fulfillment. And so that kind of started from there. Um, that company over in Israel, then over in back in the U.S. I came back in the U.S. after about three years, um, joined another comp, um, startup um, before really starting Bodhi in 2018. Gotcha. So I I want uh, I want our listeners to understand who is Bodhi, what do you guys do, what's the problem that you're trying to solve, um, and uh, yeah. So if you wouldn't mind just kind of going into that a little bit. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, kind of the best way to think about this is that. Solar companies, you know, maybe like Complete Solar, but a lot of regional solar companies across the U.S., they're actually really good at selling solar, really good at installing solar, but they they need help with delivering that digital experience that their customers now expect. And this is definitely, then, and I'm speaking on the residential side. And it's kind of interesting because on the residential side, solar is a consumer product. And these consumers, they're now very different than what they were five years ago. They're being conditioned by the likes of Amazon and Uber, where they have customers who expect that type of experience that's on demand um, at the tap of their fingers. I mean, there's a joke that we always say at our company, which is like, you can buy $30 worth of takeout like pizza and know exactly when it goes into the oven, exactly when it gets picked up for delivery and it's outside your door, but you buy $30,000 worth of solar you have no idea what goes on. And so that's what Bodhi is here to help. It's a software platform that really enables these same solar companies to start to deliver that digital experience their customers now expect. And a lot of this is through automation and personalization such that not only are you delivering that digital experience for the customers, but one is also able to really help reduce the operational headaches and um, improve operational efficiencies at the companies tremendously. So. Our customers are telling us they can save about 50%. They have a um, yeah, 50% reduction on customer support costs um, with the use of our platform. Yeah, so the real problem that you're trying to solve is trying to provide clarity to the homeowner on the intricacies of the process. I mean, from a homeowner's perspective, said differently, there's some confusions like, hey, I can get a pizza in 30 minutes, but why does it take me? And I would, I would imagine you have some stats on this, from 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 your platform, I mean, what's the average time from the sale or the transaction to when customers actually get their system installed, and then ultimately when they when it's interconnected and it's functional? Yeah, and so this is I mean, so those two points that you just described are actually really important. So from contract to um, installation, you know, that's actually not too bad. That's um, from our data, it's about um, it's about three months. There's, and some of this is, there's some areas, jurisdictions where it's faster, but there's always been delays. So yeah, not, not to cut you off at all, but we're, we're comparing three months to Australia's kind of two days. Exactly. You're right. 
you know, we as an industry have given ourselves a pass and we've said it's okay that it's not too bad at three months. But the truth is, is that um, we're, we're, we're getting um, creamed by most of the other markets where solar as well as No, exactly. And so this thing, you know, that goes into the, 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 the extra cost, the soft cost of solar. So, so we've got three months from on average to three months from contract to installation, which sounds great. And this is where an installer gets their first payment, right? The problem for a homeowner is that, wow, they've got the panels installed. They're expecting the system to be working. And then they sell, the solar company says, oh, wait, hold on. I've tested the system. I know it works, but we can't turn it on until the inspection happens by the utility. Now, that period from installation to powering on to PTO, that is now averaging... I think six weeks to two months um, from what we're seeing. And that is a period where no one is happy. The installers aren't happy because they can't get their final payment. The homeowners are like, I've got this system that's just sitting on my roof. I'm just going to wait for a utility who does not have great reputation in general. When are they going to come out around to it? And so that's a, you know, and so essentially these customers, the homeowners, they're going through this roller coaster of emotions from when they sign the contracts, they're really excited, but then they go like, hey, I got to fill out all these permitting applications. They go down low, but then they say, hey, we're about to install. So they're back up at high and then right immediately they're like, you can't, you can't use it and they're back down. And so this is, it's really managing that expectation, that customer journey that's really important for a solar company to be able to do so that they're just, they're, they're not stressing and taxing the operations team. I mean, project managers should not be up um, Sunday nights emailing and texting their customers. These are things that if you set the right expectations and you just keep regular cadence, there's a way to help, um, you know, help keep customers informed, but then let the operations team do what they should be doing, which is just executing on the project. Interestingly, just some back of the envelope math as we talk about this, what's that mean to the homeowner? Well, what it means to the homeowner is, first of all, it's just confusion, right? Like, Why is this taking so long? Secondarily, it's frustration and, and the tertiary thing as well, and maybe it's the first thing, is, is that that inefficiency costs them a significant amount of money. So that period of time between contract and install is probably on $150 average electricity bill, a magnitude of around $450 of cost, just in terms of waiting. And then that install to PTO period of time, that period of time waiting for the utility company, which by the way, is losing a customer for all intents and purposes and, and losing revenue for all intents and purposes. Uh, yeah, so that period between install and PTO is probably in the magnitude of 225 to $300, again, assuming $150 bill. So we're talking about about a $750 on average on your platform anyway, a $750 inefficiency in the marketplace for every single person that goes solar. So it artificially elevates the cost or uh, artificially decreases the value of going solar for homeowners. And it's something, it's a huge problem. We talk a lot about it on the solar podcast, um, all of the bureaucratic steps, necessary steps. But I would imagine that your platform has uh, provided some additional insight about opportunities for improvement. Um, do you um, help your customers understand where their areas of opportunity are relative to competitors? Yeah, we do. So one of the key things that it's really important is to just get a gauge of the sentiment of the customers throughout this journey. 
So we, I mean, one of the tools that we provide our um, our customers are uh, customer satisfaction surveys that they can embed along the journey. And this is really simple. And the question is simply, what's your experience so far? And the reason why this is so powerful is two, I mean, twofold. One is that it's great if the customer is happy. You know, we always want them to get like a four or a five. The, the real advantage of this is if the customer is not happy for whatever reason, they, the, a company wants to know early on, they don't want to, the worst thing is for a company to find out at the very end of a project via a one-star Google review that a customer is pissed off. If the company is able to uncover this early on, then they have the opportunity to fix it. And not only are you able to avoid that one-star review, it's kind of counterintuitively, the customers that complain at the beginning that are unhappy, but if you're able to resolve it adequately, these are the ones that turn out to be the biggest champions down the road. So the folks that you're gonna, you're gonna get referrals from are generally these folks who, you know, for whatever reason, maybe, you know, someone came in and accidentally left the door, um, the gate open and uh, a dog ran out or they had some, you know, a site survey came and left a bag um, back. Maybe the person that's going um, the homeowner's annoyed for kind of these minor things. Well, maybe the dog leaving isn't minor, but these are things that can be addressed. And those are the opportunities that a solar company can use to be able to build a stronger rapport with that customer and from that strong rapport be able to really improve you know translate that into longer term sales i know you're a doctor but not a psychologist so but i'm going to ask you a question to help me understand better the customer psyche so uh, if, if you poll customers now they might complain about the process of going solar from sale to pto but generally speaking people that have solar are extremely exuberantly happy about the fact that they have solar. And it's, it's really rare that you'll find a customer that went solar that regrets it. In fact, across the tens of thousands of customers uh, that complete solar as assistant, and I would imagine the many customers on your platform, it's just so rare to ever hear a customer say, oh, I wish I hadn't gone solar, I regret solar. They, they might complain about the process, but, but never about the end product. No, I think you're right. So I think probably on in the 90% are those that are like, very happy with it. The, but we have polled asking specifically, how do you feel about your, about your solar array? That is actually extremely high. We've also polled, how do you feel about your installation experience? That generally comes back four out of five, like 80% of homeowners actually remember that negatively. But then here's the other kicker. After some time, and this is not of customers from, from Bodhi, but we've had, we actually did a lot of surveys of customers um, that were not using Bodhi before. We asked them, for customers who went solar previously, we asked them who their solar company was. And many times they did not remember. Um, and even have they, okay, so here's a great anecdote. So I was talking to a, um, a homeowner who had two homes. On the first home, she and she went with Tesla to install solar, had a horrible experience. So on the second home, she went with a local installer and actually had a really good experience. But when I asked her who that second company was, she couldn't remember. And so that's kind of that gets back to this this issue for solar installers who are like, 
they work so hard to get that customer, you know, overcome this huge customer acquisition cost. But then they do a great job with the installation commissioning and everything, and then they're done. No one, they don't interact with the customers anymore after award. And I think that's leaving a lot of money on the table. So, so two follow-up questions. The first one is around that 80% number. How much of that do you think is just because you have a vocal minority that's willing to talk about their negative experience? And maybe some of the people that had a positive experience, they're unwilling to perform the survey. No, I think that because we, I mean, we surveyed quite a lot and over a couple hundred homeowners, and this is where we had, um, all of them were actually happy about their, <coughs> happy about their, their, their system. Okay. So you feel like you've controlled for that at least a little bit. A little bit. So, yeah. And then the second question, uh, which is the segue and perhaps the more important question is, so you talked about high customer acquisition costs and we have established that people that have solar are generally very happy about it. But the referability of any given customer, meaning how often do they refer someone else, it seems like the pain of going solar weighs pretty heavily on them when they're deciding whether or not to refer and if they're going to refer their friends. And I would say that the industry um, is, uh, at least the referral rates for the industry remain really low for a product where the customer base is exuberantly happy, generally speaking. Yeah, I think I agree with that. And I'm not sure exactly why. I mean, the it is a big dollar purchase. And I think part of it is the there definitely needs to be more. And I think a lot of studies have shown that if you've got a neighbor who's gone solar, you're probably like, I forgot exactly the numbers, like five or 10 times more likely to go solar than if you didn't have a neighbor that goes solar. So that familiarity of someone that you know, someone in the neighbor that has solar is really, really important. But there's this kind of combination of two things that are a few things that when we talk about referrals, one is they've got to be motivated. And a lot of referrals are purely motivated in, by that intrinsic. I know that there's in referral incentives that every company provides. That's a little bit of cherry on top. But you have a, comp a home, a customer needs to have a good experience first. So the better the experience, the more likely they're going to, to, to provide um, referrals. The second thing that's really important is they need easy ways of doing this. And you ask customers how they, how companies, how they actually get referrals right now. Like, well, I've got this form somewhere on my webpage. So if someone goes on, has a referral, they have to go on there, fill it out. A homeowner is not going to go through that process. And so the, what the industry needs is to provide tools that are really, really easy for a homeowner to provide um, referrals. Um, and so that's some aspects of what um, Bodhi's trying to do as well. But then the last thing, and this is really important, is it needs a triggering condition. And really the triggering condition is when that solar customer is talking to their friends or neighbors. And so what needs to happen is when they're having that conversation and the friend's like, oh, yeah, I see that you put solar. What is, what's that like? What's that? How much does it cost? They need to be able to talk about it intelligently and they need to be right on the spot be able to say, oh, look, let me send you my salesperson's contact information. And, um, and that's, I think, what will help facilitate uh, referrals more. So I got to ask you, where, what's, the, uh, what's the origin story of the name Bodhi? Where did that come from? So we, it was interesting. So we were, so our company name is legally 17 terawatts. So we started the company in 2000, 
18, 17 terawatts. And that's the total power consumption of all energy forms worldwide. And so we're like, that's a cool name, my background and all that. But when we were designing the software, we needed a, we needed a new name. We knew that we couldn't call it 17 terawatts. No one would actually um, like that. And so we we're coming up with um, brainstorm around names. And my co-founder came up with a name, um, the term Buddha Vista, which is essentially a person who has attained an enlightenment. And that really kind of hit home for us in terms of like at least the symbolic meaning of it. How does a person become enlightened with their energy use through their path, their journey on solar? But we knew Buddha Vista wouldn't work and that got um, eventually shortened down to Bodhi. Um, so we went with it and we, we tested it with users and they're like, this is a great name. Um, and eventually when we were, I was going around in the early days of selling solar, implementing, or selling Bodhi's, implementing it at different installers, um, companies, they're like, oh, hey, the Bodhi guy's coming. So yeah. And so we've just gotten, um, went with it for the past, um, four years. Yeah, it's great. Um, yeah, I actually didn't know that, uh, that story, but, uh, um, yeah. So, do you get any interesting pronunciations of of the of the name, or is it cut up? We'll get Bodai is, um, but then I would always go back. It's like, I mean, I grew up during the days of um, the original Point Break, Point Break. It's like, hey, do you remember Bodhi from um, Point Break, Patrick Swayze character? They're like, oh yeah, I do. So, uh, you've kind of gone a little bit full circle in terms of your academic career as well. So I know that you're doing some work for UT Austin. So what, what, what's your uh, responsibility and roles there? What are you doing at UT Austin right now? Yeah. So UT Austin, um, I'm a fellow at the Energy Institute and there it's really about just understanding various ways of what they wanted to do was bring folks from industry and to be able to interact with the, um, with the research um, initiatives that are there. And so it's really more of a kind of a liaison. So there's both a little bit of outreach um, that I do um, outside and interactions with um, news media and such um, on behalf of the comp uh, of the Institute, but then also to listen in to what some of the companies or some of the research uh, researchers and professors, what kind of research they're doing and seeing what type of applicability that that might have into in an in industry. So just forward thinking, are there any interesting projects that you think are particularly exciting or that have some real legs for industry that could make an impact even in the short run or, or long run? No. So I think, you know, we, there's a lot of talk about um, virtual power plants, for example, and it's still pretty nascent in the implementation, especially there's a lot of, um, work being done on how to actually take vehicles and not just doing using a vehicle like the Ford Lightning to power the home, but how can you actually have that two-way interaction of grid flow? And that both there's a technical hurdle to that, and some some of the research at UT is uh, around that area of how does that you know what is the control between uh, on the technology side. But one area which I still had, I don't think has gotten much attention is what is that user experience from the homeowner, how they're interacting with this? Because you can always look at it from the technology perspective, like, hey, I've got this fleet of cars around and, and somehow somebody's going to control it and we're going to have this great, robust, reliable system. But then people forget to ask 
the question, does the homeowner, does the owner of the car, does the owner of the, 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 the house, the PV system installer, they really want that type of interaction? And, and, how, and some of them will say yes, but some of them will say yes in particular um, more limited ways. And I think that area is a, a good area of research that hasn't yet been fully explored. I think that there's already this is already put into practice in some examples. I think you're right uh, in terms of um, it's not completely mainstream, but there are some utilities, particularly on the East Coast, that are already doing um, charge control and using customer and homeowner battery storage to be able to help stabilize the grid. And NEM 3.0, which certainly got a lot of airtime on this podcast in California, is a step toward that. Um, the technical hurdle there, I guess, is how do you control each of these disparate home and small power generation stations to be able to stabilize the grid. I would imagine that's probably the technical hurdle that you're referring to, or is it, is it something more in depth than that? Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, the other thing that we've talked a lot about with cars is, is that when we establish and think about residential communities that want to create and form their own microgrid sort of situations that might be actually eventually removed from the large macro grid um, that's controlled by the utilities. Um, how is the interplay between the storage that exists both within cars as well as storage that exists in people's basements or garages with their solar? How's that all going to work together? But the, the great news is there is it actually helps to solve some of the inefficiencies that exist. And one of those is, is you know, I was talking actually with my father-in-law and he was complaining about the number one question that people always ask that are that that don't like electric cars is, yeah, but how far can you go? Like, what's the distance that you can travel? And, you know, for most homeowners, they need, you know, 20 or 30 miles a day. So it's, it's really kind of a, the wrong question to ask. In fact, in some ways, you'd say, well, cars have too much uh, range. You know, we're putting so many batteries in. If we put fewer batteries in that met the, the typical demand that homeowners, most people that drive cars needed, um, you know, for their smaller trips, you'd actually create potentially a more efficient car but you know we're, we we have been conditioned as consumers we want that 300 mile range and i think there's a lot of reasons for it and so all of those days where you're not using that usage is there a better use for that storage and i think these are the sorts of things that get really exciting for the solar industry is is yeah can we can we stabilize the grid by using these virtual power plants and i think it's an exciting proposition but that's not really the thing that's ultimately plaguing the solar industry right now. It's it's the really it's the difficulty in terms of the, the high customer acquisition costs and the very bureaucratic process. So Scott, you're president for a day. What are the changes that you make to the solar industry to create a better system such that homeowners can can have a more natural transition into moving into renewables? Yeah. So I think the <laughs> I mean there's an effort right now, but I think I mean. It's got some major hurdles. So the whole solar, the permitting aspect of, so here's the thing. So one of the things that I would try to figure out a way to streamline the permitting process, but not in the way where this, because there's, so there's the solar app right now, which is trying to just digitize that process. However, if you go and look at the, in the oil and gas, um, take a, a lesson out of oil and gas, there have definitely been states where an oil and gas company says, hey, I've got to drill all these wells. Rather than me permit every single one of them, let me just give me the permit to drill any of them. And so it's more of a universal thing. And I think if we went 
for example, that route. And so that's a very specific policy um, suggestion. I, I Then I think that could help quite a bit um, and take away a, a big chunk of that permitting cost and delays. So how does that practically work for the oil companies? They essentially identify multiple locations and they say, give me a permit. We're going to, we're going to institute the same practices at any of these wells. So give me a blanket permit to work at any of these locations. Something along those that, yeah, across the state. Okay. And how would that work practically speaking then for homeowners? I mean, so we essentially say, look, I'm an installer in California. I'm a licensed installer in California. Um, and uh, homes are going to come in one of these kind of four categories, 100 meter, 200 meter, 300 meter, 400 meter, whatever it is, uh, 400 amps, excuse me. Uh, and um, we're going to use these sort of setback requirements. We're going to use these best practices for wind load and for uh, insulation and for sealing. And uh, just give me a blanket permit to work anywhere in the state. That's kind of the concept. I was, yeah, that would be the concept. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, I mean, it seems like a fantastic concept to me. In fact, we, we talked briefly about Australia. There is no permitting process in Australia, but there is regula regulation on, in, on the practices. So it feels like when we say that there's no regular, there's no, excuse me, there's no permitting process. It probably operates a lot more like this concept of saying, look, we're going to be a licensed contractor. We're going to file best practices here. Um, I would imagine that for most cities that are looking for the revenue that comes from permits, you'd have to potentially figure out a way to make the payment. Yeah. I mean, you still do. I mean, yeah, I would still say that there's some fees for each site that one that the city will get, but it's that process that, I mean, right now there are armies of people creating, applying for permits on every single site. I mean, there's, you know, I've got, we've got, I mean, it's gotten to the point where there are armies of people doing permit and site plans and such in India to handle that, to lower the cost of, of that practice. And do we need that for every single site? So I think that's the, the question that, our, that the industry needs to answer. And then they need to try to take, see if they can learn some lessons from some of the other industries that have been able to streamline a lot of the operations. Because... Like a lot of the installations that in solar, they are cookie cutter. And so why can't we be able to have um, a more blanketed permit operation? So, I mean, that's, a, that's, yeah, so that's, a, that's one, that's my one suggestion. Yeah. The typical costs for permitting, uh, the design and engineering piece of it, and it ranges obviously by jurisdiction, which is another problem. Some places will require an actual engineer to wet stamp both a structural design as well as an electrical design. And then on top of that, you need to have the CAD design with your single line diagram and plan set. And in those jurisdictions, you're probably averaging probably $400 of cost plus the permit, plus the, the head count for the people that are running the permits and picking permits and things like that. Um, and on the lowest end, even in the, in the areas that you have over-the-counter permitting where there's not really a permit checker per se, you're just having to submit the plans uh, and then an inspector ultimately decides whether or not you're built to the plans. Uh, in those examples, you're still probably a couple hundred dollars of cost and, and you know, added time to, to those projects. But it can be as much as like in those extreme examples, it could be a thousand dollar cost and, and certainly a delay. I mean, and I think so it's the cost into it, but I think the delay 
is a big deal. I mean, the I think for the the solar installers, their business model, you know, that you know, they're basically selling a product, starting to do work on it, but they don't actually get paid until the install happens. And so that time to install is such a critical parameter that if that can be shrunken by just a little bit, I mean, that does mean for a more profitable business, more sustainable industry. What are some of the things that get you excited about where the industry is going? Where do you feel like the industry is moving? So I think, I mean, there, there are more and more products that are becoming available, energy products that are becoming available to the consumer. So we already have the batteries, we've got EV chargers, but there is the whole electrification that's, um, that's occurring. And I think that is an area where the solar in industry can take the lead. So, you know, there's this year, there's a lot of discussion about heat pumps. It's in the Inflation Reduction Act. And so a lot of energy efficiency opportunities that are there. Um, and so some companies are already, solar installers are already selling and installing heat pumps as well, in addition to the, um, the PV systems. Um, others are looking to try to partner with other um, home service providers that can do the installs of these heat pumps or other type of um, energy efficiency services as well. And so I think with the Inflation Reduction Act, with a lot of the rebates that are going into energy efficiency, I think that is where a solar installer can start to look beyond just the transaction of selling one single um, system to now thinking about their relationship, thinking about the lifetime customer value that they, you know, that they spent so much time and effort to actually acquire in the first place. So I think that's, um, that's exciting. So is Bodhi trying to solve or add to the process? process flow, these ancillary products or these additional products? Yeah, so that's where we want to do. I mean, one of the things that we definitely try to say to our customers is that we want you to become more than just a solar installer. By developing these deep relationships with your customers, you can leverage the fact that there's this 25-year customer relation that just comes inherent in solar. So you start to go from just a, being a solar installer into turning into a home energy service provider. And I think that is where... Um, you know, owners of these solar installation companies, they start to think about where they're going to be a few years from now and what type of business they're going to have. Um, and so it's, you know, they're definitely thinking about O&M, but they're also thinking about other sales opportunities. And so this is, um, I think this is kind of the, the direction of at least some segment of the, the solar install, um, installer base. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Scott, it's been absolutely fantastic to visit with you today. Um, I would love to do a follow-up at some point. I think the wealth of information that you bring, particularly on the residential side of solar, but just generally on energy, uh, is just fantastic for our listeners to hear. It's great to catch up with you as well. Um, and uh, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, just maybe as a parting thought, um, what are some of the things that you think that uh, our listeners should hear about Bodhi that uh, that we haven't talked about today? Um. Part of that, just the life, you can remove a lot of headaches through automation and through personalization. And so that's kind of the, that's my parting thought to everybody. There's a big um, opportunity on the table for if anyone wants to be able to really embrace that concept and the opportunities that exist um, after that post-install um, part of the customer journey. Yeah, solar at times has felt like it's stuck somewhere in between construction and service. And I think that, you know, smart people like you that are working on the problem to try to make it easier for people to 
provide a great service, but also understand the construction project in the real world here in the United States and have to work within that framework. Um, you know, I appreciate people like you that are trying to make the industry smarter. And so fantastic always to visit with you and look forward to our follow-up conversation that we'll certainly have here on the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on, Scott. Well, thanks for having me, Dave.